0: Well, as I mentioned in my sermon last week, this is, uh, we're now in the season of Ordinary, and this is now the second week of Ordinary, uh, which if, if you know me, uh, or if, if you're, well, if you know me, you know that I, I'm i really thankful for a season of Ordinary right now. That's, that's very nice, actually. Uh, and the readings that we see during Ordinary Time uh, sometimes are going to be quite familiar to us. Sometimes they are going to be passages of of parables or or sermons of Jesus that we've heard before. But every now and then, we come across a passage that still might be familiar to us, but is nonetheless strange and difficult and makes us squirm in our seats a little bit. And today is one of those days. Uh, The reading from Mark is kind of a strange reading, right? It's full of a lot of really strange statements, some of which have haunted Christians for years and years and years across the globe and throughout time. Here uh, we see Jesus' family acting very rude to him. They're not respecting what he's doing. They're certainly not supportive of what he's doing. And then also the religious people, they're, this is kind of typical of, of religious people, I guess, but they're very cranky, right? Like they're coming down and they're getting in Jesus' face as well. And then Jesus talks about this unforgivable sin. That's kind of strange, right? Right? And then to kind of top it all off, Jesus is rather rude to his own mother and to his own brothers. So what in the world is going on in this weird and strange passage? Well, I would like for us to take a look at it, obviously, today. Um, One of the features of this passage is, is that the author, Mark, he loves to do this. One of the features of it is something called the sandwich method. And this is where Jesus, or where the author, Mark, the writer of the gospel, will begin the first half of a story, interrupt it with a larger story, and then he'll return back to the first half of that story. They call it the sandwich method. You could call it the hamburger method. Uh, You can call it A, B, A prime or something like that, but that's that's a little too uh, scholarly for today, I think, maybe. So the sandwich method. Um, Hopefully I'm not making you all very hungry right now. But what we see in these sandwich methods is that it's always a story within a story, and the two stories always inform one another, and it goes both ways. They speak to one another. And so as you're reading through Mark, and this is why I feel like I need to point this out, is because as you're reading through the book of Mark, if you ever find yourself really confused and wondering what in the world he's doing, maybe take a step back and see if this is a sandwich story because there's like seven or eight of them throughout the gospel. And as you meditate on these, and as you kind of see how the two stories work with each other, meaning will start to emerge to you through the text. Uh, It's a beautiful way in which the Spirit loves to to teach us uh, and instruct us. So we're going to start at verse 20. And this is so the first slice of bread of the sandwich. And this is when Jesus goes home. Now, most likely this isn't his home in Nazareth, but rather it's Peter's home, uh, in Galilee. And so Jesus is going back to, to Peter's house where he's sort of what's base for him. And there is a massive crowd that's gathering here. So much so that people have no room to eat. Sometimes we have parties at our house like that where the kitchen just gets automatically like packed, right? And it's really hard to cook. And sometimes it slows down the meal preparations. So that's what's going on here. And if you sat down anywhere in this house, you'd probably be trampled on, Right? But people are eager to meet Jesus even early on in his ministry. They've heard of his teachings that are like none other. They've heard of the healings that are happening and and wondering if maybe perhaps they could be healed from their ailments as well. But not everyone is really thrilled about what's going on, are they? In fact, Jesus' family hears about this. And the text tells us that they come from where where they are in Nazareth. And they want to come and they want to seize Jesus. Now that word "seizing Jesus" is a strong word, right? That's not really a word that we use with our children. Usually, when you hear the word "seize" used, it's it's like the police are coming or something like that, and someone's running away, and they're like, "Quick, seize him!" You know, usually when you're chasing your children, I don't know. I've I've never said, "Molly, let's go seize Karis." Um, <laughs> that day is probably coming. <laughs> So they're trying to seize Jesus. They're trying to take control of Jesus. They're trying to apprehend Jesus and bring, them ba- or bring him back home with them. And they're saying he is out of his mind, is what they say about Jesus. Now, why were they so frustrated with him? Well, there's, they're probably frustrated with his teaching. There's rumors of Jesus meddling with the devil himself. You know, we can see from the context of this passage that people thought that maybe even Jesus was speaking blasphemy against God. And so there is probably a chance that Jesus' mother and brothers are trying to care for the safety of the crowd, right? They don't want Jesus to do anything that's too crazy or to mislead, um, to mislead the crowd or anything. But they're also probably frustrated at Jesus because he's not taking care of the family, at this point in his life. You know, a lot of scholars believe that by this point in Jesus' life, uh, Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, had passed away. And so in that sort of situation, as the eldest male uh, in the house, he should have been staying home and running the business, the business of carpentry. But Jesus wasn't doing that. And so maybe, G- maybe Mary, his mother, felt that Jesus was dishonoring her in some sort of way. You know, maybe things are starting to slip in the house. You know, maybe the other brothers are a little cynical about Jesus leaving. You know, things like this. It's also important to know that dishonoring your parents in Jewish culture is a grave sin. It's condemned within the Ten Commandments, and the law of Moses says that parents could stone disobedient children. It's kind of unbelievable, but that's, that's true. So perhaps Jesus' family are doing the respectable thing. Some parents are like, hey, you remember that, right? So, (laughs) Remember the stoning piece. We'll tuck that away. Don't stone your children, please. That's that's not being recommended today. So it's easy for us to kind of judge Mary uh, and her other sons, but they were doing the respectable thing. They were going and taking control, attempting to take control of what they perceived to be an unruly son. Now imagine that you have a son who's, kind of getting in trouble quite a bit. Maybe he's going downtown and butting heads with the police and the other town officials. Maybe he's hanging out with riffraff. Maybe he's hanging out under under bridges with folks and and prostitutes. Maybe he's saying some odd religious things and stirring up a mob. What would you do in that situation? Well, I I don't know about you, but I'd want to go downtown. I'd want to find him. I'd want to speak words of love to him, or maybe even, I don't know, get a hold of him and throw him in the car and, and bring him back home and give him the medical attention that he needs or, or anything else that he might need. And that's exactly what Jesus' family is doing here. They're trying to put an end to the commotion. Mary has already lost Joseph. She doesn't want to lose Jesus as well. So they come to seize him. They come to try and bind Jesus now, do you think Jesus is able to be bound? No. No, of course not. That's one of the themes of the book of Mark, is nothing will bind or control Jesus. Well, that brings us now to the middle portion of the story, to the meat of our story. And so we learn that not only was Jesus' family upset with him, but also some of the people in Jerusalem were mad at Jesus as well. You know, Going back to our earlier analogy, imagine that Not only have you been hearing reports of your son, but so is the governor's office. So the governor is starting to send some officers to go check out what it is your family member is up to. Maybe this guy's going to start some riots. You know, they might be wondering. And so down come the scribes from Jerusalem, not just to deter Jesus, but to put up barriers to stop this from happening. And they throw some pretty lofty accusations at Jesus. In fact, they say that Jesus is in cahoots with the devil, with pagan gods and with Satan himself. They threaten Jesus. They try to undercut his authority. They're saying that the words that Jesus is saying are not words of abundant life, but words of eternal damnation. Just like the snake in the garden, Jesus is now coming to lure away God's people from God's holy law. Well, these aren't just words that would have affected Jesus. These words would have affected the crowd and everyone who was there as well. They would have been guilty by association. Now, what they were saying was, like I said, it's not just indicting Jesus, but it's indicting everyone else who was there. You know, if you yourself were there, you would have gotten the impression from the scribes that you would be unclean just by associating with this possessed man. You would have been unacceptable and unwelcome at temple worship. You would have been barred from getting any job by any law-abiding Jewish person. Don't side with this guy, the scribes are saying, or your eternal soul is in danger. So this isn't just smack talk from the scribes. These are serious accusations. So we see that Jesus is trying to be controlled. He's trying to be controlled by those who are near to him and by those who are far away from him. He's out of his mind, say those within his family. He's possessed by Satan, are the accusations of the religious leaders. So people are coming to try to take away Jesus. So we all know what a straight jacket is, right? Hopefully no one has been placed inside of a straight jacket. But, you know, it's, it's one of these long shirts with long sleeves on it that wrap behind and then you know, can be locked in back. So a straight jacket is an outward sign that you've lost your mind. Uh, that, that some things need to be addressed. It's also a sign that you've become dangerous to the people who are around you. And so you've needed to be subdued and bound up and rendered helpless. You can't pick anything up when you're wearing a straight jacket. You can't hurt anyone. You can't touch anyone. And this is the epitome of what it's like to be bound up. And being straightjacketed is isolating and lonely. Do you think... Jesus is going to be bound up? No. Of course not. So Jesus has some words in response to what people are saying to him. First of all, Jesus says that the accusations are just logically flawed. He's like this, what you're saying makes absolutely no sense. If I'm under Satan's command, how would I be why would I be casting out Satan's minions? A kingdom divided against itself itself cannot stand. Likewise Satan if he's trying to hold any power in the world, he's not going to be um, engaged in some sort of civil war. It's nonsensical for Jesus to be in cahoots with Satan, right? And this is exactly why, a few verses later, down in 28, this is why Jesus brings up the subject of blasphemy. Uh, John Wesley, I didn't write down the quote, so I hope I get this right. But John Wesley said something about how every Christian, or... A significant number of Christians in every nation across the globe have have felt condemned by this verse. And they've wondered, many pious Christians have wondered about whether or not they've committed this unforgivable sin. But what the unforgivable sin is here that Jesus is saying is that Jesus is is animated by Satan. When in reality, Jesus is God clothed in flesh. He is sent from the Father and filled by the Holy Spirit. Jesus comes to bring order to our chaos. So when the scribes say that Jesus is possessed by Satan instead, this is a really big deal. It reminds me of the words of Isaiah. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe to those who put darkness for light and light for darkness. You see, this is unforgivable because what they are doing is they're saying that the Holy Spirit is actually evil, that the Holy Spirit is Satan himself. They are accusing God of being evil. Now again, this is, if if you're in a position where you've heard this verse and you've wondered, wow, have I ever done that before? That's a sign that you're wanting to seek the Lord. And it is good to, to realize that there's no record in the Bible of someone being withheld forgiveness when they ask for it. That's not what this verse is talking about. For those of us who want to serve the Lord and want to be forgiven our sins, the Lord gives us mercy and grace in abundance. So, Jesus, that then brings us to the next thing that Jesus wants to say in verse 27. Jesus says that he comes to bind the strong man. That is why he has come into the world. Not to be bound himself, No, but to take the prince of this world and to bind him up, the strong man who is the snake that slithered into the garden long ago and caused all of humanity to fall into the snares of sin. In fact, back in the garden, God said there in verse 15 of of Genesis 3, said that the offspring of Eve would come one day to crush the head of the serpent. And this is why Jesus came, to bind up Satan, to crush his head and to plunder the household. In other words, to rescue sinners like me and you from the grips of Satan. That is why Jesus came. So that then takes us to the second piece of bread of our story, the third component. This is again when we pick up from Jesus' family coming. And again, they're calling to him, they're trying to take control of him. And in response, Jesus says these rather surprising words. He says, who are my mother and my my brothers? Those who are here, those who do the will of God, these are my family. These are my brothers and my sisters and my mother. Those who sit at my feet and listen to my teachings. Those who come and pack in the house, right, with this abundant celebration that's going on. So we see that, um, that this is why Jesus came Um, and this also reminds me of the word from Luke that Jesus says, that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Now, the world is victim of Satan's forces. Families are certainly under attack, and I'm sure we could all share stories of of how hard it is to actually keep families together. You know, the good news in this story is that Mary and Jesus' brothers do eventually come around, Mary is with Jesus when he's dying upon the cross and, he's on, and she's honored in the early church. James, one of Jesus' brothers, becomes the leader of, of the Jerusalem church. So we shouldn't give up on our own families. Not all is lost. And it's com- but it is comforting to know, right, that Jesus even struggled with his family a little bit. But not only are families in danger by, or victims of Satan's um, forces, but the leaders in our society are as well. At a minimum, minimum, they're confused about Christianity. But at most, they are accusatory and malicious towards Christians. We, We live in a society where evil is celebrated and righteousness is mocked. And today, Jesus himself is made out to be the fabrication of lunatics. This is a world ensnared by Satan's forces. So something fun happened this week. Um... My kids are outside playing all the time. Not just last week, because we shipped them off, if you recall. But they came back. Um, but I was outside, and I saw a neighbor across the street getting out of his car. And this was a big, big deal. Because across the street, we don't really know any of our neighbors. It's kind of crazy. We've, we've been there for four years. Uh, but we don't know any of the neighbors across the street. We do know nearly all of our alley mates. So he gets out of the car, and I was also getting out of my car, so I hop out, and I'm like, hey, I'm Rick. And he introduces himself to me, and we chat for a little bit. He's lived there for about 30 years. He's raised his three boys in that house. Uh, but now he's there by himself. Uh, and it's kind of funny. He asked me, he's like, so have you, guys, have you guys been there for a year yet? Has it been a year? I'm like, yeah, it's been four, you know. <laughs> and he's like, uh, oh, oh, okay, like, do, you, um, do, you, do you have a, a child? I think I've, I've seen a child." Of yours, I'm like, yeah, we've got we've got three daughters, you know, and uh, so it's just I know that that whole row of homes are just very similar to my my new friend here. Um, a lot of folks living by themselves, um, not really coming out of the home too often. In fact, we learned recently that 50% of Minneapolis residents live by themselves, 50%. And many of these folks are elderly. Um, many of whom are folks who have kind of been chewed up and disregarded by some social systems. Now, this isn't always bad, so it's not like a condemnation. If you're here this morning, you're like, well, I live by myself, Rick, like, come on. It's not always bad. You know, we might choose to live alone for a season. I did for a while. It was, it was actually really fun. Um, but it also might be a component of the calling that God has placed on your life. It might be a calling um, that God has put on your life. But whether or not it's a calling or a choice, it's still something that needs to be reckoned with, right? You still need to think through like, well, how am I going to have community in my life? Now for some, this isolation is an unwanted outcome of unfortunate events. It's an unwanted, isolation can sometimes be the unwanted outcome of unfortunate events. Either the dejection or wounding of family or the structures of an industrialized, amoral society have brought them to this point. Well, the reason why I'm bringing this up is because Jesus knows what it's like to have the entire world wanting to bind you up and to take you away into isolation. Jesus has felt those forces upon himself. Now, while Jesus is not taken away and bound up in Mark chapter 3, we know that there is a day that comes in which he is. In which Jesus allows that to happen. His close close friends, who by this point had become family to him, are the ones who betray him. And the religious leaders eventually do have their way with Jesus. And he's killed. But even then, even then, Jesus will not be bound by death. Even then, he will not be controlled. Jesus breaks the chains of death and darkness. The strong man is defeated, and Jesus is now liberating people who he can call sisters and brothers by the way isn't that cool that he says brother and sisters in here in a male dominated world he still says sisters and brothers so he wants us all to come into the household of God and this is a packed house for a party maybe they didn't they weren't in a gymnasium like this where we have a little bit of room to, to move around, but in this house it was packed and it was fun to be there. There was singing and merriment, I'm sure. There was a proclamation of truth and the forgiveness of sins. This is a house full of joy and of rest. Now, maybe one of the things that, that I wish would have changed in this verse, but who am I to critique Mark the evangelist, right? But it says that they didn't have room to eat there. And I was telling Molly, like, Ah, oh, it'd be so nice if he, if he would have picked a different phrase to say. Because when you are a part of God's family, there is plenty to eat here. Every week we come to the table where you can be served in abundance the presence of Christ himself. This is a family of abundance. So I invite you this morning to come to the table, brothers and sisters, to the table of Jesus Christ, and let us feast with him as people as people who have been unbound and unchained from the snares of Satan and come and now live a new family life with Jesus. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.